Hello and welcome to the Rice Historical Review podcast. My name is Eddie Plout, the podcast director and producer, and today we have Abigail Penitz, the RHR Director of Copy Editing, here to talk about her honors thesis. Abigail, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. It's Halloween, Eddie. I can't complain. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I woke up and uh, did not feel particularly spooky today, but maybe it'll hit me when I have some caffeine in me. Soon. So... Abigail, uh, could you explain to our listeners your sort of general area of interest in history so that we can kind of get a sense of what your thesis is about? Yeah, sure. So I guess I'd say that my thesis was informed by my interest in Southern Spanish history, which came out of kind of a class I took at Rice um, with Dr. Irish, who is now one of my thesis advisors, Medieval Borderlands. So in that class, I actually wrote kind of about uh, one of the Christian uh, rulers or kind of warrior kings, although that's probably not an accurate term, um, of Spain, the Cid, which is a commonly studied kind of popular figure. And that kind of got me interested in sort of the theme of that paper as well as studying kind of state formation in the Middle Ages in general, understanding sort of the Southern Spanish, the, the different Muslim empires that existed there, um, particularly around like the 700s. But actually, my paper has shifted a little bit and is still on Southern Spain, but focuses more on actually the conquest of um, sort of the Castilian kingdom. So what people remember is Isabella and Ferdinand um, uniting this Iberian peninsula into sort of what is more now commonly known as as the Spanish kingdom. And so my thesis focuses more on kind of how they converted Muslim spaces in that. But it kind of combined my initial interest in understanding sort of Muslims and subsequently Muslim spaces and then just sort of at Rice in various classes I've done a little bit of work on kind of understanding historical memory and contention over spaces and things like that, um, which I think is an interesting subtopic of history. In sort of coming to understand the development of these empires, especially in terms of understanding them in terms of how they, is there an element of not just state building, but identity building as well? Is that uh, sort of something you generally had interest in? Like the like development of, I don't know, internal state culture, like a cohesive state culture that comes about as a part of state building? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that the, the two are probably pretty interconnected. You can't really, you would kind of see all of the physical alterations as, as coming potentially top down from the sort of king and queen's vision of having a, a unified Catholic Spain. And while that was something that was kind of in development since sort of the 1200s, um, kind of under Isabel and Ferdinand later on, which is actually a little, it's later than the sort of conquest and the taking over of the local space that I focus on, Cordoba, um, by that time is kind of a coalescence of ideology that had come out of Conquest and and the separation of non-Catholic peoples, that kind of escalated. Um, so you could say it's, it was kind of part and parcel of the steps that they took towards consolidating their power. Although, obviously, kind of the ideals that they had can't always be mapped one-to-one with, like, modern sort of concepts of nationalism. It was definitely sort of a centralized ideology. So how do you synthesize this study of like Spanish state building with one of Muslim spaces. How does it, how do the two relate in your thesis? Yeah. So I guess that kind of links to the process of my thesis. And it was really helpful to actually narrow down what I would be working on. um, Because in the beginning, I I had wanted to talk about various aspects of sort of Muslim mosques in general, those being 
um, sort of more publicly documented and obviously famous kind of architectural spaces. And then I actually ended up kind of at the behest of my advisors, fortunately, focusing a little bit more on a particular mosque, so the Mosque of Cordoba, which is interesting because it's a very, very recent sort of debate. Um, so kind of if you think about history as being years in the past, uh, my topic actually focuses on articles that were published as, as recently as like two months ago in September, mid-September, which is kind of funny because when I was writing the prospectus <laughs> for this thesis, um, These that, things those any, things did not yeah. exist. <laughs> so that was kind of helpful in steering me there as well as just kind of in looking up mosques. And I was trying to sort of understand how the ownership in the past had been depicted um, sort of in basic searches. A lot of it came up in sort of discussions of 20th and 21st century um, uses of mosques. And this mosque, the Mosque of Cordoba, the Great Mosque, um, which is now known as the Mesquita Catedral, which is the mosque cathedral um, because of its converted use really popped up as sort of the most discussed so it made logical sense kind of based on preponderance of evidence to use that one as well as it gave me a focus of kind of because well I kind of noted you know Isabella and Ferdinand in in the 15th century really consolidated Spain a lot of the documents and and the processes earlier on were regionalized and obviously as they were kind of the Castilian kingdom was incrementally conquering. So focusing on one region and focusing on um, the dynamics, if, if possible, at play there um, seemed like a, a good course of action. Mm. So what sort of argument are you going to try and make about this mosque cathedral? Sure. Yeah. So the, the argument kind of goes into a recent debate that had fomented kind of as of 2016, but really um, it started in 2006 when um, sort of policymakers decided to formally give the title of ownership of this mosque cathedral to um, the Spanish Cabildo, which is like the church chapter. So basically like the local chapter of the Catholic church there. Um, and that sparked resent- not necessarily resentment or, or maybe tensions um, between kind of people who perceived the ownership to be uh, tied to the Spanish state rather than to the Spanish church. Um, And so there were lots of discussions. There was a sort of a petition that was founded um, and a group, um, Mesquita Plataforma de Todos, which means Mosque Platform for All, in 2014 that carried its weight over um, or kind of just its presence into 2016 when there was a revival of sort of this discussion and it was kind of sparked by the regional government, so the government of Andalusia, which is the province, kind of if you were to translate it over in Spain, where Cordoba is a part of, in that province, they decided to issue a commission that would publish a report. And the report's publication in 2018, uh, sorry to give so much context, Mm -hmm. um, ends up kind of stating that it is, in fact, the property of the state. But kind of my argument focuses on the ways in which this report is a subjective document and kind of proves, obviously, we talk a lot about how history is never fully objective, particularly when you get to a higher level of analyzing the primary source language. There's kind of always a motivation behind it. And it's not really kind of just to prove that there is a motivation or what the motivation might be, but rather to understand how the subjectivity lies in its references to the medieval history itself. So a lot of the report touches on documents um, that were kind of popularized about Alfonso X, um, who was a 13th century ruler who would have been dealing kind of with the the dynamics of conquest at this time. Um, but kind of the applications, obviously, of such earlier centuries to this this modern history are interesting. Hmm. That's interesting because it, it seems as if when the state chooses to hand over the mosque cathedral to the church chapter, um, that seems like a pretty clear choice 
in who you favor and who really gets to make the decision and what really the, the, the space is treated as. Right, right. What sorts of primary sources are you using for this analysis? Obviously, you're looking at a lot of the language of these reports themselves. And um, how does that tie back into maybe primary source research um, not from a current day? Sure. Yeah. So it's basically just the one report that they published, which is interesting because kind of the conception of and the presentation of this committee is not, I guess, at least online, it's not entirely digitized or available. It wasn't as if they had sort of multiple presences and there's not even sort of in the report itself a explanation of the processes or kind of even of who these people are. Um, so that's kind of stuff that I've been corroborating um, based on a lot of the news coverage from sort of local newspapers, so El País, El Diario, and other ones um, particularly local to Spain and in some cases Cordobin locally. And so those have been helpful in quoting not only the people who are have created these reports, so sort of the four members were three primarily and then one the other person affiliated with the report was kind of just more involved in the organization of the committee body. Um, and then also understanding the church chapter's responses. So a lot of it is kind of trying to trace those through to available documentation. I think part of it, obviously, it's not all, all going to be out there. And this is probably one of the first sort of document, documentative or documentary, I should say, reports on it just because it's so recent. So that's been interesting. But in the report, they explicitly cite the Siete Partidas, which were this sort of the seven parts of Spanish law that Alfonso X had defined. Um, that could have related to sort of the Cordoban, I guess, dynamics. However, kind of looking at Alfonso X, this document may not particular completely uh, carry over just because it wasn't a sort of live action doc or live day-to-day -day documentation of what he was doing, but rather kind of it was published or really codified in complete form at the end of his rule. And so there's, it's interesting to understand sort of what applications to his actual period of rule the laws had and whether there were really that many practical applications as opposed to sort of what he ideologically wanted to see. Um, and so then in terms of I had actually started by writing sort of a, a chapter in the middle of this thesis and I'm going to go back and go earlier and look a little bit into Alfonso X, um, his sort of day-to-day -day chroniclings, um, the cronicas, so literally just kind of his, his diaries or, and or sort of the records that people might have, people being, I guess, historiographers of the period um, of what he was doing. So in interpreting this document, which some of it online, some of it available, some of it not, mm -hmm. and interpreting the history of Spain that you're looking at as well, is there like a body of secondary sources you're able to draw on? Is there an analysis of like Muslim spaces generally and the treatment of Muslim spaces mm -hmm. in the Spanish state? Is that an area of history that's really well developed? Or are you kind of on your own, like largely left in the woods, like figuring things out on your own. Sure. Yeah. So I guess sort of discussing a lot of the, or at least my exposure to Spanish history in terms of what I'd studied in the past, um, and that being sort of linked to what I think of as the predominant kind of historical work that's been done. A lot of work is is obviously on kind of the medieval period and um, sort of from the 700s over to Sort of 1492, which was the culmination, the formalization of the Reconquista, the Reconquest, um, but really more around like the 700s to the 1200s. There's kind of a lot of work on, for example, the Muslim states, which I thought I, I was going to touch on, sort of the Umay Umayyads, for example, um, or local caliphates, as well as sort of local Christian states. However, kind of 
those medievalists kind of comprise that period. And then there's sort of discussion on the state formation of kind of Isabel and Ferdinand, but in between kind of understanding the process by which that changed over. So in other words, not just the unification. I think there's work obviously on the unification in the Castilian kingdom and how it eventually was led by Isabel and Ferdinand, um, but sort of what was left behind and the the day-to-day practicalities. Um, there's somewhat, obviously, d- documentation to some degree was destroyed, but kind of there's, in terms of the discussion of how people were expelled, et cetera, um, there's pretty good body, I guess, of work on the uh, spaces of Jews, particularly because some more of them were kind of allowed to or ended up staying around and having their Jewish spaces and then the synagogues. It's a lot. It's pretty, even though there are so few left, um, you can kind of understand where and how, or people have endeavored to understand where and how they've changed. So I've kind of been looking slightly at that, and I will look a little bit more at sort of those historians who understand the Jewish approach. I think what's also been helpful to me is understanding kind of the discussions of the medieval age that sort of preceded what I'll, what I'll be talking about. Um, so in particular, understanding how these three cultures, so understanding the Muslim kingdoms or local sort of principalities, if you will, um, and, and the Christian ones, as well as um, the Jews that lived within them, um, how, those all, how they all interacted has been one of the biggest topics um, of research and one that my advisor, Dr. Irish, does a lot of work on. Um, and it's kind of developed in sort of the recent um, decades um, into understanding convivencia, which is coexistence between the three groups, and it kind of just dispels a notion of earlier kind of storytelling of how there were violent interactions and sort of pragmatic wars for power between all three of these groups at any given time. And I think that's kind of been helpful context for me to, to read more about um, Dr. Irish's own work, Alex Novikoff's work, Olivia Constable. There's uh, a large variety of kind of not only sort of scholars, but scholars who have worked closely with one another to develop this theory. So it's been helpful to understand kind of the nuances behind um, the period that preceded this, um, just because it shows otherwise I could have been sort of wrongly interpreting the mosque as kind of a distinct space of individuals who had never interacted in the past. Um, and, and because of that, while it's a Muslim-only space, it kind of links back to a past that's that's richer and sort of more interaction-based. How much of your reading is in Spanish? The majority, I guess, if I if I look at sort of the, the bibliography of what I've been working on. Um, when I look at the primary sources, a lot of that is in English, and the, their quotes are translated, which is similar to the approach I'm taking. The report that I've been working on, obviously, was published only in Spanish, and most of the newspaper articles um, are coming from sort of Cordoba directly. So basically every primary source I use, even though it's also interesting to kind of see this topic was, um, particularly because of the the Cordoban Mosque is registered as a World Heritage Site, so UNESCO has played a role in kind of discussions. For that reason, there are some English newspaper articles, but I've focused generally on the Spanish ones. But yeah, it's kind of connecting those to most of the secondary sources being in English. And so in the documents, in the document and in the resulting thesis itself, what I'll be doing is putting the quotes in through my bare bones translation. Admittedly, I'm not completely fluent in Spanish, but um, I endeavor to kind of just make a readable, um, still faithful translation and then keep the original quote in the footnotes so that hopefully the actual Spanish historians (laughs) who are reading it will kind of be able to pick and choose what they want to look at. I think out of everyone in the program, your thesis has done the most evolving. Mm-hmm. Could you just kind of talk us through like where your initial 
prospectus started and where you are now, like where the changes have really been, where the issues you've encountered were, what sorts of compromises have you had to make? Yeah, I mean, if I can even think think back that long ago, it seems like distances away just because of the ideological <laughs> shift or not even ideological, I guess just research-based shift. I was looking more about the development and the contestations of present-day mosque building. So, for example, in Seville, I had wanted to understand kind of the stakeholders that were involved in projects and the way that the newspaper articles discussed their their projects for construction and then when those construction projects were denied kind of how the documentation stopped um, but a lot of this ended up just being kind of fact stating or things pointing out that, that I found interesting rather than things that I could substantiate given the amount of time um, given my kind of skill set and the source availability so that kind of turned more into figuring out what kind of thing related to a mosque I, I could link to and that or that other discussion kind of of the present-day mosque building would have been more tenuous just because I would have wanted to do a similar sort of incorporation of more medieval history. However, it wouldn't have been like a an easy or really sensible task to compare, for example, their mosque building to earlier evidence of, of mosque building. So it kind of just focused on trying to find more of a historical focus. I think a lot of my discussions fall into the bounds of social history, for example, that can crossover into sort of if I were, I don't know, a political scientist or a sociologist could have been projects to undertake on a different scale. But hopefully that kind of thing is, is something. I mean, my other advisor, Dr. Wildenthal, was very keen on telling me not to shelve completely, but to uh, save in my head those other sort of research questions for another time or maybe even potentially for someone else to think about. So. It does seem like there's a big sociological component, especially in yeah. understanding like how the public sees the spaces right. and interprets the culture. Yeah. So sort of to kind of wrap things up, I'm going to ask you what I've asked each of the different honors thesis candidates who've come in here. Obviously, your your topic has changed a lot, mm-hmm. and your attachment to different parts of the topic has probably remained consistent or changed mm-hmm. throughout. But this project that, as an honors thesis class we are undertaking, is probably more elaborate and time-consuming and requiring of long-term commitment than really anything we've done at Rice. Do you feel a particular attachment to your content in a way you didn't think you would? Uh, Is there like a part of this content do you think that will like really stick with you in your future learning? How really have you become attached to your thesis? Sure. Well, I guess I was always I, I was somewhat attached to the idea of writing a thesis for a while. I was always drawn to the independent component and saw it as oh, kind I definitely of the, wasn't. <laughs> well, I was, and I, and I guess I thought it was going to be kind of the the biggest example of of my work as a history student and kind of a testament to how well I've been taught by the history department at Rice. So I was I was thinking of it in that way, and I guess somewhat there's an element of hubris in that and being able to show that you can can do such a thing, but really to having enjoyed other research projects because kind of every chance I get to develop my own question, even if it was kind of a an assignment and at some point in time where you're able to choose a research question that was given or develop your own, I always wanted to develop my own. Um, I think there was sort of an emotional attachment when I was talking about the present-day mosques and sort of how they were being denied access earlier on when I had that research approach. And then when I switched over to this one, I kind of tried to make sure that 
I understood the the paper could and probably would change in terms of the scope just from sort of where I found research insights and that I shouldn't be too emotionally invested in one particular part and because we kind of move things around a lot. But I still think it's sort of interesting and, and irrelevant, obviously, it's being in 2018 um, still, um, conversation and I guess religious history is something I'm interested in and in terms of sort of the, the practical, I, I wouldn't even, no, I'm not ambitious enough to say or even posit that there are practical implications to the history we write per se, um, but sort of the, the discussion that it enters into is interesting or applicable to me in particular because I did study in Spain, even though I was not conducting, so it was last fall, so I was not conducting or really thinking about a thesis, um, but having sort of visited the Mesquita de Córdoba, living in Seville, and sort of seeing and hearing discussions about southern Spain's Muslim past were interesting to me, and I think it's it was just something that really made me want to produce historical work, so something that inspired me and I think will hopefully, and after the publication of this and probably couple or several years later, I'll go back and it'll be kind of exciting to see more about what I knew then or what I was learning then and then what I developed here. Great. Thank you, Abigail. I think that's going to do it for us. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, if you want to check out more of the Historical Review, check out ricehistoricalreview.org and listen to some of our other podcasts on our SoundCloud or iTunes. And the call for submissions is out. <laughs> oh, yeah. that's actually I'll, I'll add that, too. The call for submissions is out for the Historical Review. It's the due – the deadline for submissions is January 5th? 10th. 10th. January 10th. And for the – you have a chance of winning the Lear Prize, a $500 history department subsidized prize for the best p- submission that we get. Uh, even if you're not the best submission, you have a, a chance of being published in the Historical Review, which is always very cool, and coming on the show and talking to me about your paper because uh, I know how much all of you listeners would love to do that. Make sure to check us out soon. We're going to have more honors thesis candidates come on the show and like us on Facebook. Thanks a lot.